Hey GP learners and welcome to this update episode from myself and Andy as we're talking about the changes in general practice and we've got a massive episode for you because we're talking about what looks like to be a potential GP workload crisis and in this episode we're going to cover a variety of different things including how things have been over the past few weeks. Additionally, various stuff like the new PCN DES contract for 21-22, vaccine passports and loads of other things as well so buckle up because we've got a massive episode for you but how are we doing first of all andy yeah i'm pretty good gandy um i'm loving your energy this morning i'm just kind of feeding off it um yeah really really high energy it's good yeah let's get going cool so we're going to start off basically talking about that is there actually a workload crisis and um, if you look at all the social media groups and, and various different things over the past couple of weeks um obviously we're in the easter bank holiday weekend when we're going live with this and the question is is there actually a workload crisis? I mean, I mean, how have you felt over the past couple of weeks, Andy? Is it busier than normal? I've felt pretty busy over the last few weeks, actually. It's been busy at the practice. Um, there's been um, a lot of patient demand for appointments. Um, it's obviously been year end. So as PCN clinical director and a GP partner, that's also generally a busy time for us. Um, mm -hmm. I think the complexity of the work seems to be increasing. Again, there's an element of catching up things that were missed um, or put off during covid there's mm -hmm. been an uptick in complaints, I've noticed, at the practice. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether other people are noticing a similar thing. I think it's as people are realising that things might have gone wrong for, for various reasons, not just at the GP practice, but often within the mm -hmm. wider NHS system during the COVID pandemic. And mm -hmm. they're now feeling in a position to take action on that. So all sorts of reasons, really. Quaff's about to, to restart, no longer protected. There mm -hmm. are all sorts of things which we'll be covering in the episode. How about you, Gandhi? How how are you feeling the last few weeks have been going? Yeah, so so I've not been shy about sharing this, particularly on social media and stuff. I, I think the past couple of weeks, for lack of a better term, have been absolute chaos. Um, we've definitely seen a significant increase in the number of patient contacts, so particularly the past couple of weeks. I've had probably some of the busiest days I've had for a long time, and, and it doesn't seem to be easing, and I think that's the concern um and like you say it's a variety of things you know uh, we're helping out with vaccinations um there's definitely an element of business as usual coming back in force and, and obviously we're preparing for quaff and various other things but in terms of how patients are contacting us you know a lot of it is very much you know um waiting for appointments for things that, that have been you know bubbling along for a long period of time it's just stuff that to be honest we can't really do a great deal about you know i've got many patients waiting for scans or outpatient appointments and, and I, I don't have the ability to change that but unfortunately we're the focus of that and, and like you say as a result of that complaints are going up as a result of people's tolerances seem to be getting down the expectation that because everything seems to be opening up we should be doing even more but bleh, yeah it, it's not been a pleasant couple of weeks to be honest um and i, I think we're seeing some of that across the board as well aren't we i mean we're going to talk about a few different articles um got one in particular i think that we've come across from pulse isn't it um in terms of the average working day week is that the one that you've got up other than there yes this this is the first one which i think is a really good place to start so there are several articles that we we're going to be looking at this morning and i think they all pick at a, a different area and concern around workload but this is a really good summary to start so Pulse have done a, a, a survey of GPs and their workload over the past few uh, weeks, and they've covered about 14,000 um, GPs, which I think is quite a big survey sample, um, really, of patients who have chosen to respond and reflect on their workload to an invitation to do so. Um, yeah, it's really good, actually. And they've produced some really nice infographics within their article, which I think is a good place to 
sort of have mm -hmm. a have a look through really so average patient contacts a day for a full-time gp they said 37 um which i think sometimes feels a bit low <laughs> for me actually it can it can be more but i suppose that's an average isn't it and um, and they've asked people what they feel the average safe um, number of patient contacts is and that's 28 which uh, i think is reasonable and i know at the surgery we aim for you know a normal day to be 15 in the morning 15 in the afternoon for a total of 30 which is close to that um, yeah i guess to yeah. comment on that on yes oh, not yesterday sorry thursday i had 38 in just the morning you know so that that's how busy it has been so yeah mental wow yeah yeah it's 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 it can be crazy can't it candy mm -hmm. um and and then um they've looked at the uh the complexity of of the patients and mm -hmm. um, just asked us to reflect so people are feeling that they're seeing quite a complex um complex sort of case mix um and, and workload um how do you feel about complex complexity gandhi at the moment uh, are people coming are they more complex consultations in your experience i think i think we are seeing a, a, a significant increase in the complexity of what we're dealing with and there's a variety of reasons for that number one is we're trying to do more things remotely because of safety and infection control and all that kind of stuff and like i said although the the country seems to be opening up we're obviously now into the next phase of you know the, the pandemic response um we're still having to be cautious as to about how we bring patients down um and therefore trying to do as much as we can remotely to protect both the patients and our staff recognizing that covid is still a, a real issue for us but then on top of that it's the build-up of various different things that people have wanted to talk to us about and then trying to deal with all of those in a way that means that we can move the patient forward in their journey and I think the other thing that is adding to the complexity that GPs in particular are facing is we've got more roles to help us in primary care and there's certain things they can deal with. But if you're asking for the person that can deal with everything all in one go, that's always going to be the GP. And we're now pulling various, you know, we're transmuting our role into this person that kind of coordinates care for a lot of things, not necessarily directs care. And that brings an added complexity and an element to things that that's definitely causing some challenges, I think, for certain areas. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Gandhi. And as we bring in these other professionals, they need supervision, as you're yeah. saying. So so actually, say pre-PCN, pre-pandemic, um, you know, I might have been struggling when I have to see 37 plus patients a day, often a lot more than that. But now I'm still doing that, but also supervising um supervising ars roles you know mo most days of the week i'll have some sort mm -hmm. of role um spending time supervising somebody who is in a new role working across multiple practices um and often uh, that role itself is not terribly tried and tested um mm -hmm. like social prescribers or clinical pharmacists although that's a bit of a longer established role um mm -hmm. so that's just another thing which isn't really captured on here i suppose it might be some of these orange other work hours um, that represent um, this now 11 hour typical working day that the surveys revealed amongst GPs. Um, looks like they've they've represented it as a clock sort of running from 8am to about 7pm, which I think is actually thinking about the days that I actually um, work and do clinical work in practice. That's mm -hmm. conservative. You know, often I'm working uh long beyond seven definitely mm, in the evening absolutely. often often nipping to a care home on my way home to do a home visit um mm. that i've triaged earlier in the day or in the afternoon so um certainly these 
statistics ring true with what I find myself doing and what I know that colleagues at my practice do and what I hear colleagues at other practices locally do. So mm. I, I don't think these are unrealistic in any way. And if anything, maybe a little bit on the low side for Nottingham City general practice. Agreed. So, so the so we knew a lot of this before, and I think it's been worsened by the pandemic. Ultimately, there was a period of time where the workload did actually feel a little bit lighter in the summer, and I, I'm sure uh, yourself, Gandhi, will probably agree, and probably a lot of our colleagues. And that was evidenced by the fact that locum GPs were worried that they couldn't find work or that they were having sessions previously booked with practices cancelled even. So there was a fairly brief period of time where things um, got a little bit better workload-wise, but I think things are certainly back with a vengeance and probably in a worse position than they were before. The survey goes on to ask people about the impact of the pandemic, and this is where I think it's actually quite interesting. So let's look at some of these questions. So how does the workload now compared to before the pandemic, so people are reflecting that it is definitely slightly or significantly higher um, on average, and only a real minority of people saying that they think that it's lower now than it was before the pandemic, mm -hmm. which I think is is interesting. Um, Gandhi, what do you think is driving that? We've alluded to some of the factors mm -hmm. already, um, but what do you think is driving to that work, driving that workload increase or perceived increase? Well, I think there's a, like you say, unfortunately, I think there's lots of different things. So there's obviously yes. the fact that we're handling a lot more in general practice compared to, you know, a year previous. I think there is absolutely the element that a lot of other kind of periphery services that normally would have been functioning, they've actually stopped completely um, because of the pandemic. And as a result of that, we're then trying to manage the patients who would have been dealt with through those. So, you know, there's particular things like certain, if you're looking locally, there's certain obesity services, podiatry services, various other kind of clinics that have just basically stopped. They're saying, well, we, we can't see patients because of COVID. And actually, they don't, we don't have a route to send support, you know, send those patients or support those patients. So then we're having to deal with that juggling, for lack of a better term. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it is, I think, anxiety is a massive part we know there's a mental health burden that's going to happen from the pandemic it's already happening with you know many people having to go through long periods of isolation and you know how that's going to impact general mental health not only um you know in those people already with existing mental health challenges but actually you know which school children that have had a massive impact in the way that their whole lives have changed over the past year so many you know younger people are struggling and, you know, generally how we're coping with the isolation for the elderly as well, across the board, the mental health impact is going to be significant. And how do we deal with that? Because those aren't quick consultations, but those are consultations that take significant amount of time and empathy and effort. And they can be quite draining, particularly when you're having, you know, five or six on the trot, um, which is not, unfortunately, not uncommon. No, I agree. Gandhi, just to reflect, what mm -hmm. do, because this sounds quite negative, um, mm -hmm. but what can we do, do you think going forwards to address things I've, I've jotted a few bullet points down myself sort of prior mm -hmm. to us talking but what 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 can we do going forwards to to help with this i think there's a variety of things that could help and i think one of the first and foremost ones is this whole discussion that is going on at the moment in terms of um you know total triage versus um face to face um and if you again, if you look at all the various social media channels, the news, all that kind of stuff, there seems to be polar views on how this works. And the absolute reality 
is that our way forward is the combination of the two. You know, it is not one or the other um, because you can't do things just by total and digital triage and you can't do things just totally by face to face because there just isn't the resources and the capacity and the, and the workforce to do either of those effectively. But by amalgamating the two and having those systems and that understanding that the combination of the two can be really effective, both from the clinician and, and from the patient side of things, I think that's definitely one of the routes forward. You know, so changing both sides of it, the expectation barriers to to say that actually this is you know how we can make your life easier, more effective in terms of the type of care that you get. That that's probably the big one for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I I, I think. Um... I think it's important to recognize the impact that technology has had on this as mm -hmm. well. So um, talking to, to colleagues, um, you know, both sort of face-to-face -face and electronically, I know a lot of people who have actually been struggling with mm. um, using some of the new technologies. And these are not uh, because of technical issues or because these GPs are not tech savvy. Often it's actually the younger GPs um, uh, with less clinical experience I've found mm. who have been studying and speaking to trainers. I think some trainees have struggled, uh, with a move to, uh, telephone and online and video consultations. And that's because there's just less information to go on during those consultations. You can't see the body language. You can't eyeball the patients. Uh, patients behave differently in terms of how they respond to questioning on mm. the telephone. Um, either there's an added dynamic of, um, patient agenda for a face-to-face -face appointment or that they don't, you know, it's inconvenient for them to come in for a face-to-face -face appointment or they don't want to because of perceived um, risks to themselves because of the COVID pandemic. So mm. there's that added element of gaming for or against, you know, the face-to-face the -face that they may or may not want and that may or may not be necessary yeah. to handle them safely. And people find that stressful to navigate, you know, as a clinician, mm. you know, that lack of the, of that that information that you would use to judge the safety of the consultation, you know, the ability to quickly, without any extra cost to yourself, your organisation, or inconvenience to the patient, convert. Uh, well, not convert. These are new words. Um, just reach out and examine the patient, you know, and, and mm -hmm. touch them and get some physical information from them. Just just isn't there. It's a decision whether to. It's a bigger decision whether to get that or not. Um, so, I think actually, it's in some ways the technology makes things more difficult for sure. clinicians i think there are potentially even more more benefits in a way for uh for patients in terms of it's very convenient mm -hmm. um often organizations feel that they can get more consultations out of their clinicians because these are electronic or telephone consultations um but actually it's really hard for the doctors so i think i think um in a way people like ourselves who are advocates for technology in medicine and in general practice need to sort of be very honest about the impact of these technologies and that they're not Agreed. always positive. Um, and I think we are, I think we are balanced yeah. about that just for the record. Uh, but I think we just need to, to continue to make that case because there's a danger that they're seen uh, by the powers that be NHS England department of health as panaceas that just solve all the problems and they don't, it's much more complicated than that. So I think mm -hmm. it's important to just be, honest and, and and we and other people who know about these technologies have a role in advocating for their proper use um yeah sorry a bit of a rant there gandhi but uh, you know i've been bottling that one up um, fair enough and i think there is that also question about how we manage demand 
um, absolutely as well, because we are seeing a spike in every, every across the board. Um, if you look at one, so um, for everyone that is uh, watching or listening, we will put the links to all these various articles down below. And in one of them, it does mention about the fact that if you compare now compared to pre-pandemic levels, general practice is already offering a million more appointments than what we were offering before COVID started. So that's not, you know, this this time last year when, you know, COVID was kicking off massively. Uh, and we know that there was less appointments being used at that time because everyone was in lockdown one. But actually pre-pandemic, we were already offering a million more appointments across the board in general practice. You know, so for those critics that turn around and say GPs are shut and all that kind of stuff, it's 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 just lies. We have never been shut throughout this period. But absolutely, we are offering more service to our patients. It's just different service. And that's the key thing that needs to be absolutely recognised. And more importantly, not penalised, you know. And we are seeing so many issues in terms of complaints because it's not perceived the way that people want. And actually, the world is changing. That just has to be acknowledged. Uh, very true. Um, the final thing I would say on this, Gandhi, from, from me, is I think as we talk about R and I, you know, restart and recovery and all, and all of that. I think it's perhaps time to restart and reopen the, the book on some of the discussions that we were having before the pandemic um, about funding models of general practice, mm-hmm. um, the appropriateness of the partnership model and the way that we're contracted to have discussions around that. Um, the presentation of availability and access by the government and by NHS England um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ways of managing demand, token charges for accessing services you know you, you may before that you may be against it but it may be time now that we are beginning to restart or look at restarting business as usual to start having some of these discussions which were very appropriate um before the pandemic and i think are mm. still appropriate again now that we're out of or coming out of pandemic mode so i think we'll find that we're talking more about those things going forwards in the future as well and i think that that's appropriate to keep those discussions open True. I don't think it's going to be long before we end up having that inevitable debate that constantly bubbles in the background about charging for appointments, for example, or what exactly is the NHS offer in terms of the offer to patients. Um, and you know, we're seeing that some of that already. I mean, I mean, that's probably a good place to segue into the next kind of section we were talking about, which is non-essential workload. So there has been an additional article that's come out recently about the, the difference in perception of what people think is essential workload and how we should be proceeding now, now that we're in the new financial year. Um, and particularly the RCGP and the BMA have both come out and said that, you know, actually general practice should still be focusing on only essential workload, not the non-essential stuff. Um, I think you've already got that article up right now, haven't you, in terms of, you know, what they've commented. And I, I know you've read this in a bit more detail than myself, but um, there's two parts to this, isn't it? There's obviously this and then the, the next article, which is a bit more contentious um, about vaccinations and things. Yeah, this is this is this was an interesting article, actually, because the, the headline um, is sort of quite, quite dramatic. Um, but so this so we're ready to restart um you know, Quaff and CQC from uh, Quaff. So Quaff is restarting from April. CQC are resuming some of their inspections. Um, there's uh, new uh, guidance coming about about restarting um, non-essential workloads, um, and they sort of contrast that those new announcements with the position of the BMA and RCGP, stating mm-hmm. um, that GPs should um, pause a significant proportion of their non-essential workload to focus on COVID vaccination rates, and of course, COVID vaccination is continuing and GP practices do need to continue to focus on that. But that was a state, that was a joint statement from January. So I'm not 
sure um, about um, implying there's controversy um, by uh, presenting these two statements, which are sort of four months, you know, three, four mm. months um, apart. Uh, the BMA and RCGP are probably developing new positions on this. So but I thought it was an interesting article, and it, it makes an interesting point, though, because those vaccination activities are still going on, and we're looking at mm -hmm. them going on through into the summer and then probably leading into vaccination boosters in the yeah. winter time, it looks like at the moment. Um, so I think it, it, it's re it's a relevant discussion, um, but I just thought it was an interesting article that felt a bit more controversial than maybe it was. True. But like you say, we're, we're going to see the continued um, adaptation of the whole vaccination programme. And that impact has been you know, amazing across primary care. Let, let, let's be honest, the success of the vaccination programme across the country has been driven by the involvement of primary care. And as we see that change, well, that raises the question, how is it going to continue? But also the coming flu pandemic, you know, vaccination scheme that will kick off um, officially in September. But the prep work for that is already having to start now. You know, we don't even know what that looks like. Are we going to be giving additional boosters for COVID vaccine with the flu ones? Are they going to have to be separate, which creates you know, additional workload? Do you even need to give them in the first place? There's so many unknowns. And yet again, we're having to manage that with, like you said, the restart of QAF, the restart of CQC, various other aspects that are coming through, which we're going to talk about towards the end. You know, there's so much stuff coming through. Um, and again, if we're going to segue, I'm going to look at the next one, which is the I think the one that concerns many people at the moment in terms of general practice, which is this whole concept of vaccination passports and the workload from that coming through to general practice. Um, and this doesn't help that several government officials, to be honest, have been talking inappropriately about general practice being the place where you get your vaccination passport or certificate or whatever you want to think about from. Because let's be honest, if we're doing that on top of everything else, <laughs> we need to get those buttons worked out, Gandhi, that do the sound effects that we keep talking about. Yeah. Supplied your own there. Very, yeah. uh, very expressive. Um, yeah. Yeah. The government, yeah. The government um, have been talking about vaccination passports or calling them different things um, mm. for, for a long time, really. And other countries like Israel, you know, have actually implemented um, policies that, that are like vaccination passports, making certain activities dependent on somebody's vaccination status. And it feels like listening to the noises coming out of government that um, that may be a direction that the UK will go down in the future. Uh, maybe not for going to the pub and restaurant, but um, potentially more likely for um, traveling on your holiday abroad and returning from your holiday abroad to the UK from uh, from certain other countries and so forth. So I can see some sort of um, need for people to demonstrate their vaccination status, um, be that via a passport or not, um, becoming real uh, in the future. Uh, this article is interesting. Um, the RCGP are getting out ahead of the debate or getting into the debate um, mm. uh, placing the cards on the table and saying that whatever happens, uh, they believe that GPs should have um, that the, the scheme should have zero impact on GP workload, which I think is absolutely reasonable um, and should be the case. Um, I just can't see how GPs need or should have a role in this. Um, I think mm. we'll probably have an episode coming up in a few weeks' time about vaccination passports. It's a really interesting topic and um i think we're anticipating some information coming out from various parties involved so there'll be more to talk about in a few weeks time
Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people talk about the tech solutions that might help with this, how it, it absolutely needs to be a nationally mandated thing. This is not something that should be done regionally. You know, um, I would, you know, really hate for my consultations in general practice to be focused around trying to supply patients with, you know, their vaccination status, um, encroaching on the work that we're trying to do to help patients with their medical care, because this isn't a medical issue. This is an administrative thing simply put, providing information about the vaccination that they've had is a purely administrative load. But then even transferring that workload to our administrative teams, let's be honest, they are overloaded as well. Let's not just talk about the clinicians. You know, our practice teams that support us are massively overloaded. So bringing that workload to general practice, that simple interaction, you know, should not happen. Um, and if it does, the simple answer then has to be, well, what are you going to ask us to stop doing in response to that? Because that's the thing that never gets asked of general practice. We want you to do more. We don't necessarily want to give you more funding or resources to do it, but we're not going to take anything else away. Now, that did happen over the pandemic because it had to happen. But we're seeing that kind of transmutation with all the additional workload coming through that actually that may not be the case moving forward. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I'm really encouraged by the, the college coming out out the blocks and saying, yeah, shouldn't lead to any additional workload to general practice because if it does, it's not acceptable, you know, so. Yeah, it's good. They beat the GPC to it. That's that's yeah. good. Good on you, RCGP. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I think this is where, I mean, we, this is where I think you can advocate for a technology solution that would genuinely save people's time and reduce the complexity around an issue. True. You, know, you just use something like the NHS app as the basis for, um, a platform to enable people to demonstrate to whoever they need to um, mm. their vaccination status. You know, the NHS app, my NHS app at my GP surgery knows that I've had one of the COVID vaccinations, got my next one this afternoon. So that should should be fun, fully vaccinated after this afternoon. And then mm. it will know that. So just adding a tab to the NHS app that just, um, you know, gives a QR code that someone can validate as being real and from the NHS app that that screen is real. Um mm you know, can show that to anybody and, and demonstrate my vaccination status. And that feels like that would be quite easy to implement. Um, sure. so some, some some questions around digital inclusivity, I guess, and so so forth. But, but, you know, just 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 do something like that. Feels simple. Yeah. And, and we what, talked what, about that additional workload that's coming through. So the other big thing that came out over the past week is the publication officially uh, of the PCN DES 21-22 um, so this is basically what PCNs are now required to do over the next um, financial year. Um, a lot of details in there. Um, let's be honest, we're talking some significant documents um, and size of documents. And there are some central themes that came through with this. Um, the first thing both myself and Andy are going to say is don't panic. And that's absolutely taking something from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, but effectively, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to summarise these various documents for you. So you can have a listen or watch as we go through the various different parts and focusing on the key areas that you need to consider. But in summary, just so that you've got a headline of what's going to be coming out in the next year or so that practices and networks are going to have to focus on, that there are a couple of things. So um, in, in terms of the DES contract itself, obviously, there's that first question of whether or not um, practices continue to sign up to. You've got till the end of um, April to decide that. So 30 days. And in that time, there's a couple of things that will be provided. Obviously, there's the, the funding that comes through from the network participation, the £1.76 per registered patient. Um, there's the additional funds that go to the network for £1.50 for administrative costs and CD costs and all that kind of stuff that come into it. But then there are some additional 
requirements to do that. Obviously, there's the ARRS workload. So in terms of the staff, and we have three new additional roles that are now officially available. So there's the uh, paramedic workload, uh, sorry, workforce. There's the uh, mental health practitioner, which is an unusual one because it's a 50-50 split between us and the mental health trusts, and unfortunately limited to one whole time equivalent per network, depending on the size. And then there's the advanced practitioner role, which is the new one in terms of trying to support the need and the recognition that you're going to need potentially more support in terms of that kind of um, structure of how you have your workforce and, and, you know, lead clinicians to help with the training and that kind of stuff. So, so I do like the fact there's the additional roles. Don't like the limitation on mental health worker, but I know we talked about that before. And then additionally, we've got key, I think, um, components, criteria, whatever you want to look at, that the network's going to have to focus on. Um, the most time sensitive one is probably the GP um, appointment standardization workload. And I think many places probably haven't cottoned on to this one just yet. But by the end of June, you have to, you know, standardize the way that you record your appointments. Um, and we'll be covering this in a lot more detail. So don't worry. Um, but it talks about how practices document and record their contacts with patients because by standardizing it, they hope to then use that information to understand GP workload a lot more effectively. Um, and there's quite a lot of detail, unfortunately, that, that comes with this. Um, and I think for some practices, it's going to be very little work that they have to do. There are going to be some practices where it's going to mean a significant way in the way that you use things like your appointment rotors and that kind of stuff and categorize them. Um, so like I said, we'll, we'll cover that um, in the coming couple of weeks or so. So you've got an idea of what that looks like. Um, there's definitely the PCN QOF, I like to call it, or the Impact and Investment Fund, as it's called, in terms of making sure you're getting um, particular things in terms of various aspects that the PCNs are being asked to look at. And that feeds into some of these other things like the structured medication reviews, um, which there's some additional detail as to what they should be looking like, what type of patients they need to focus on. Um, I think the big one with that is the gabapentinoid opioid focus, um, which we'll talk about again when we review that particular area. Um, enhanced care, home, enhanced health and care homes. Um, there's a bit more detail as to what that should look like and how that should run. And obviously that now goes to the full £120 per care home resident bed um, per year per network. Um, so obviously, you know, what that whole kind of process looks like to support care homes. Um, and then what was the other one? Oh, yeah. Uh, cancer early diagnosis, which is probably the smallest of the papers, but actually the one with most resources in it when I had a brief look at it. Um, and quite interesting because we know that, um, you know, potentially there's a, a cancer time bomb coming our way in terms of people not having access services. And, and how do we actually improve cancer care across the board? Um, so, you know, this part of it does look at how we do that. And, and, you know, it is part of the whole kind of process and things. So lots of stuff in there. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to be looking at how we can help support you to understand a lot of this in the next couple of weeks. Um, so I, I guess we just wanted to cover that from there. But but that is a huge amount of workload coming our way, um, particularly for networks and things and leaning massively on the ARS roles to support delivery of that. And the workload of the clinical directors like me and you that have to manage it all. Andy. <laughs> have I scared you yet? <laughs> There's a lot there, Gandhi. Um, I'm helpful that... Um... Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that in uh, you know splitting the work and um, you know I'll I'll go through summarize some you can summarize some we mm -hmm. can get our heads together talk about the overall impact of everything um, and I'm hopeful that you know um, that we can help people digest um, this information over the coming weeks so that they can start mm -hmm. putting it into practice 
quickly and uh, make sure they maximize on their opportunities on their contracts in the coming year, I guess, and deliver mm -hmm. great patient care. Yeah. <laughs> it it does seem lot. a little bit times overwhelming the amount of stuff that we have to do. And it would be nice if, if it just finished there. Unfortunately, it doesn't, does it? Because um, general practice is always asked to do more repeatedly over time. And, and so there are some additional workload asks that are coming through as well. Um, and interestingly, these are tied up with some of the wider system changes that are happening. So um, as we now move towards the shift of ICSs as well, uh, we're seeing how does the NHS as a whole recover? So not just general practice, because we've obviously focused a lot more on what general practice is being asked to do. But now we're also going to look at how this affects you know, the whole NHS. And, and there's some interesting parts that came into that. Um, we've already talked about quaff resetting. We talked about vaccination phase two. I think there needs to be the absolute recognition that the workforce is tired, really tired. You know, some of our hospital colleagues have been doing some unbelievably amazing stuff. And, and we know that this particular weekend, for example, is going to be exhausting for the acute care sector um, as they, you know, they deal with um, the bank holiday weekends and hopefully what will not be a, an, you know, another spike in COVID and things. But then how do we manifest all the, you know, restoring work that has to happen? So, you know, there is a massive backlog of elective care. Everybody knows this. This is partly why we're so you know, drowning in general practice because we're juggling all these patients that are still waiting for their investigations, for their operations, for their outpatient appointments, all those kind of different things. Um, and one of the interesting articles I have found was about this whole concept that GPs will be asked to review the waiting lists of the hospital sector um, in terms of, you know, those people and those patients waiting for various things to happen. Um, Gandhi, I've, I've not read this article myself. Is this okay. is this for real? Is is this how real is this? So it leans on the fact that, in, and I've forgotten exactly which document. Probably it is in the it is in the Pulse article, um, the one it alludes to. But there is, and I've been through the actual document it leads to from NHS England. But there is a line that, that does include both primary and secondary care working collaboratively to look at the elective care workload. So, so it does specifically say primary care in there. Um, and this is to do with the additional funding that's been allocated to the NHS for the next six months. So this was the 6.6 .6 billion that was allocated to the NHS as a whole, of which only 120 million of that was given to general practice, despite the fact we do 90% of the workload in the NHS. I love that, you know, <laughs> distinction. Uh, you know, 6.6 .6 billion to the NHS, to everything that happens, of which 120 million goes to the workforce that delivers 90% of the contacts and, and the workload of general practice itself. So, so that that is a little bit unbalanced in my view. Yeah, it's less than it's less than 10%, isn't it? Yeah. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. 2.5% maybe. I'm trying to do the maths quickly in my head, but um, it does seem um inverse and out of proportion. Um and yeah. what I find frustrating, the original document, and I apologize, I've forgotten, I've read so many documents over the past couple of days, I've actually lost track of which one is which. Um, but the part that I found most interesting when it mentions that whole primary and secondary care working together to tackle the elective list, there is absolutely no mention of funding being transferred to help with that. You know, it talks about the funding being used for acute care trusts to manage that, but there's no mention that that funding needs to follow through to primary care. And I guess I'm going to go on my little soapbox here. You know, if any of the work is done to try and support the changing of 
you know, the the elective workload, the cases and that kind of stuff, then if there is not funding attached to do that, and I know there's going to be some lay people out there thinking, oh, this is GPs asking for money. But simply put, if there isn't the resources to help to do that, then general practice should not in any way be engaging with this because actually to do so will negatively impact all the other stuff we're trying to do and already struggling to do because there's just not enough of us to do it. Um, so, you know, should general practice help with the elective care workload actually as a system? Yeah, I think we should if appropriately resourced and funded to support doing that work. And if that doesn't follow, if it just is, well, your, your GPs, you're doing your capitation as usual, to be honest, not that time. Yeah. Really yeah, don't. Candy, I've often, um, I've often reflected on, you know, how we, how as a profession we handle these, um, these questions, because, because we are both responsible for the clinical care and management of the resources as GP partners. Mm -hmm. We often sound very different to people in other parts of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And I often, you know, wonder how it comes across to the public. You know, it's a difficult position from which to speak about resources yeah. isn't it because there's that perceived conflict and what i i was dealing with another private organization the other day and they had a really great way of dealing with an additional ask and i wonder if we should start doing this and i'm going to start doing it a little bit more in meetings which is where they say right oh uh, people might say well gps you know could and should help review secondary care waiting lists and and say something like that's a really good idea that would be really impactful. We'd really love to uh, to help with that. Um, how are you going to resources to help with that? Because we have all of this other stuff to do. But it's come from a, a positive position. It worked really well on me when I was trying to get someone to do something. Um, mm -hmm. and that person said, oh, they are really helpful and they do care. They are interested. Mm -hmm. um, but um, and they're asking for resources to do it, you know, which is not unreasonable. How are you going to help us help you? Um, and and I thought it, it just came across really well. So I I wonder if we need to take a a leaf out of their book in a way and um, uh, and uh, represent. I'm going to I'm going to play with representing that argument in a slightly different way going forwards and and see what happens. Mm. Um, but um, but anyway, sorry that was a little segue, Gandhi, into. Mm. Um, the psychology of stakeholder engagement, I suppose, is what we're talking about. Um, but I think that needs to be recognised, doesn't it? Constantly, general practice is asked to do more and more and more. And we've seen that over the years. We've seen this massive you know, shift of workload coming to general practice. And, you know, in some ways, we're always, you know, told that the funding will follow. But, but often it doesn't. And yet we're still left trying to manage all these things. And there comes a point where actually... We will get to a stage where it's, it, well, it is unmanageable already, but then it will lead to people leaving the profession, you know, and I think once that happens, how, how do we manage things? How, how do we make sure that we still offer safe, effective care when we don't have the resources and we don't have the staff and we don't have the capacity to deliver care effectively? And, and then who suffers in the end? Well, it's the patients, you know, and that, that can't happen. That really should not happen. And if it does, well, as much as, you know, everything else, you know, that is the fault of the commissioners, to be honest. And there needs to be that recognition that you can't just keep asking for more and more and more, you know, on the basis that, you know, that's how it should work. Right. Here, 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 Gandhi. Um, it's uh, 
but it's, it's, the, it's that public perception that sort of because we we can I'm sure we come across as being complaining and you know and uh, and always concerned about issues of money and I just wonder if there's a different way to present ourselves in a way although I don't I don't know just playing with thoughts true what's the what's the next what's the next one have we got another have we got another story we've got a few haven't we but we've just been yeah we've just well, they're, they're along this the, the theme of resources and workload really absolutely and i think you know one of the things we do hope in the coming episodes like we said is to provide you with more information and resources to help understand a lot more of these complex things and particularly in terms of the pcn des and, and, and that kind of stuff so that content will be coming shortly if you do find that useful content, it'd be really good if you could let us know. So definitely give us a like to this episode if you're watching us right now or listening to us. And, and you know, that, that will help to tell us what you think, as well as additional comments and stuff in terms of what you've heard and, and seen in this particular episode um, and what you would like to see coming from us in the near future. Both myself and Andy have got some really amazing projects coming up in the next couple of months um, in terms of supporting GPs and, and patients and all that kind of stuff coming through. But obviously, we always love to hear from all of you. And, and if you have found this useful content, like I said, leaving us a like down below, you know, review, comment, whatever. Absolutely awesome. If you could do that, it makes us feel nice and tingly inside, but also means that we're creating more content that's relevant and sensible for yourselves as well. But I think that's a good time for us to kind of pause and, and say, yeah, we'll catch up with you all next time, isn't it, Andy? I mean, anything else you wanted to add in? No, not, no just... I've been impressed. It's, it's um, Gandhi, it's a year since the lockdown, isn't it? Since the it lockdown is, yeah. started and it's been marked in various places. So um, I think it's just nice to to mark that here and just sort of, you know, thank everyone uh, working within the health system and, you know, and members of the public for, uh, for everything they've done in the pandemic response over the last year. It's been a really interesting year for EGP learning, mm. um, all sorts happening and actually quite a lot of growth of the channels, uh, hasn't there been Gandhi, which has been, yeah. it's been, it's been really nice to, um, to, to help the community and help primary care over the last year, hopefully by doing um, interesting and helpful um, things. So I just, I just mark that, that, that moment and uh, thank people because I think that's a nice thing to do. Um, and, uh, and thanks Gandhi for, uh, for, for, for leading EGP learning through, uh, through the last year. So oh, it's definitely been a collaboration, mate, but as we said, lots of interesting stuff still to come over the next particularly the next few weeks um and yeah definitely keen that we can continue to support all of you egp learners out there as much as we can with your technology enhanced primary care and learning and we'll catch you in the next episode see you later